Well, good morning, Crossroads. If you're new to this gathering, welcome to the club. So am I. Uh, my name is Trig Viker. Uh, my beautiful wife, Mallory, and our daughters, Noelle and Rayma, just uh, moved here from Ohio, and I'm your new resident pastor. So whether you like it or not, you're stuck with me. But uh, we've been walking through the book of Jude, and I'm going to be honest, I can't believe how much there's actually packed into this book filled with 25 verses. I remember when we read it on the first week, I'm like, we chose to do four weeks on this, and now I am saddened that today is our last day that we'll be looking at the book of Jude. But the encouragement is we get to hear more from a brother of Jesus because next week we're going to be heading into the book of James, also a half-brother of Jesus. Um, and so I'm really excited to unpack the last couple of verses with everybody this morning, but we can't unpack the end without going back to the beginning one more time. Jude says, to those that are called, beloved and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, love, and peace be multiplied to you. Jude is filled with so much love when he writes this difficult and challenging letter to the church. And he writes them with a purpose in his love, and that's in verse 3. I urge you, I'm pleading with you to contend for the faith that was once and for all handed down to God's holy people. This is our call, contend for the faith, because some inside the church have come in and said, you can believe whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, you can think whatever you want, and as a result, uh, they have given you license to live in immorality, the result of which is death. And so we fight, but not as the way the world fights. We fight in the love of God, if we remember from last week, praying in the Holy Spirit, building one another up, and rescuing those that are in the fire, pulling them out and sharing the gospel of our Lord with them. But today we come to the end of the letters, uh, closing, and you want to know what really encouraged me this week as I read this text? If you remember the first half of verse 3, Jude says, basically, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I have to set that aside so that I can pick up this issue of contending, but Jude can't help himself. And we shouldn't be able to help ourselves either because he comes right back to where he wanted to begin talking about our common salvation and the glorious God that brings us to us. And isn't that awesome? That's what a doxology is. Doxa just means glory. Logos is word, so it's a word of glory. And all over the biblical text, whether it's in the Psalms or the end of a song or the end of a letter, the biblical writers almost draw us into the throne room of heaven through their doxologies like an exclamation point where they're explaining that, yeah, all of this stuff that I wrote to you mattered, but it only matters when we draw our eyes to heaven, when we are encapsulated in the God that we're doing this for, the God that we love, and look at how amazing this God is, look at what this God has done, and that's what a doxology is. Look at how glorious, look at how majestic, Look at how wonderful the God that we worship is. And last week we ended by saying that contending is not something that we just muster up out of our own effort, but it's something that flows out of us 
by the Spirit of God that has been poured into us, when we're saturated in his love, when we're communing with each other in community, we contend for the, pay, for the faith, which is why Jude ends here with praise to his brother Jesus. Because the fuel, the thing that actually gives us the tank to keep going is the worship of God. The fuel for our contending is the worship of God. And this is why I believe the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That's a doxology. And it's like the eyes of our heart through the broken world that we live in and the sin in our own lives have developed cataracts. And Paul is praying, like, I pray that those would be healed, that the eyes of your heart would just see the majesty and glory of God in the salvation that you have. And, and, and it just draws our hearts to worship. This is what doxologies do. And worship is the engine. It is the fuel for the fire that is ignited in two ways this morning by Jude. What God does and who God is. He says in verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. The first thing that God does is he keeps us from stumbling. And you know, if you were here the second week, you know that verses 5 through 16 is this just great expression of Jude describing all the people through this broad brushstroke that he paints in all of Scripture who have stumbled and like rapid fire, boom, boom, boom. Jude is just like, remember the angels? They stumbled. Hunger for power took them out. They rejected the place that they were put in. They rejected God's authority. They stumbled. Or how about Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities? Sexual sin took them out. Perversion took them out. They stumbled. And they gave themselves over to it. Or how about Cain? Stumbled. Murder, anger, jealousy took Cain out. Or how about Balaam? Greed took him out. He stumbled. He sold out God's people for his own gain. Or what about Korah? He stumbled. Pride took him out. He rebelled against God's leaders and Moses and Aaron, and he led 250 other guys to do it with him. And so all of these are the people that have stumbled, and it would be so easy to run down this list with some sort of judgmental eyes, because, like, that's them, but no way I'm going to get in that mess. But then when you distill what they actually struggled with, you realize it's things that we all struggle with. Hunger for power, hunger for control, sexual sin, anger, jealousy, Pride. And then the question becomes, well, how do we withstand the body blows of false teachers who are saying all of that behavior is okay because God's grace is enough? And how do we withstand the three-headed monster that is the world, the flesh, and the devil? And the answer is really simple for Jude. To him. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you aren't able to keep yourself, but he 
is. Jesus is the only one that can keep us from stumbling. And do you see the contrast here? This whole book is about contending for the faith with those who want you to stumble by giving you license to sin, by license to live an immoral life. And we're left wondering, am I going to be in this fight alone? And the answer is no. God will fight on the same terms as these characters, and he will fight right back for you. He is not going to leave you alone in that fight. In fact, he is able to keep you from stumbling amidst an entire group of false teachers who are telling you that your stumbling is okay. Jude is sure of it. You are kept for Jesus Christ. Jesus is keeping the angels under his authority, and now he is able to keep you from stumbling. But he doesn't just keep you so that he can throw you in some trophy case and you just stay right there for people to look at. He keeps you so that he can have you for himself. And that's why the second thing that God does is not just keep you from stumbling through Jesus, but present you before his glorious presence without fault, blameless, and with great joy. And I find the language that Jude is using here really fascinating because this is priestly language. In fact, I believe this language alongside with the language that comes to us in verse 23 that we learned about last week is a textual hyperlink to a story way back in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. Now, just to lay the groundwork again, we got to remember that when humanity falls in the garden, there's the separation with God. Sinful humanity cannot dwell in God's direct presence. And so God wanting to be with his people but not being able to be in exact proximity with them creates this temple system with priests and sacrifices so that he can be among his people even if he can't be in the exact same place as his people. And so in Zechariah chapter 3, we get a picture of this where he gets a vision of the high priest. His name is Joshua, and he's standing before the Lord. And this is technical language for what a priest would do in those times in the temple where the white hot center of God's glory would dwell. And if something sinful were to enter the holiest place, it would be dead immediately. And so Zechariah in this chapter, he gets this vision and he's most likely getting this vision on a specific day, the Day of Atonement, which was the day every single year where the high priest, the holiest man on the face of the earth, would enter the holiest place on the face of the earth before a holy and glorious God and he would be Israel's representative. His clean would become their clean, his Uh, His presence would become the people's presence. Their holiness was the priest's holiness. And so they would take this extremely seriously. The priest would get himself all pampered up. He would wash himself over and over again. He would wash his clothes over and over again. And then the text says that Joshua, the high priest, stands before the Lord. Satan is there too, accusing as he always does as the prosecutor, and to our shock, what does God see in the holiest man on the face of the earth? He isn't clean. 
In fact, the text says that he's filthy. He's covered in filth in the presence of the holiest God. And part of us are wondering, like, why isn't he dead? Because that was essentially a death sentence. And he's filthy. And it's a picture. In fact, the text says this is a symbol. It's a picture of our need to be cleansed. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet, says all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts, even, are like filthy rags. And there's kids in the room, but that's basically the G-rated version of what that text means. In a room full of candles, this high priest is a 100-watt light bulb, but then he goes into the presence of the sun. He's nothing compared to God's holiness. In fact, he's filthy. Left to ourselves. This is all of us before a holy God. We are filthy. We are dirty. We are repulsive. And if that offends you, I'm sorry. But it's the truth. Now, me and my wife, don't judge me for this, but I love the show Survivor. I know you watch it too, okay? So let's just, all right, now that the judgment's gone, I love that show for so many reasons. But I mean, one of the reasons that I love that show is that these contestants, they have to like be out in the middle of nowhere for, you know, basically more than a month on end and survive on almost no food, rice and beans. And throughout the course of the, the competition, uh, they have these challenges, and some of the challenges are to continue to go on in the game, but then some of the challenges are reward challenges. And about 30 days in, usually they have the same type of reward challenge every single season where, you know, the contestants, if they win, will go to a hotel room locally where there's like a resort, and they'll get to sleep in a bed for the first time in 30 days. They get to take a shower. And, I mean, these people at this point have lost 25 to 30 pounds. They haven't shaved. Their hair is mess. They've got big beards and hairy legs and they look disgusting and they're full of filth and the first thing that always happens when they walk into the hotel room, they don't go for the bed, they go right to the bathroom or the shower, somebody said shower, and they look in the mirror. And every single time that these people, it's just fun to watch, go in the mirror, they're like grabbing their face like, what the heck do I look like? They're in absolute disbelief about how filthy they are, about how emaciated they are. And I was thinking about that this week. Like, do we know what we look like physically? Think about it. How do you present yourself? What do you wear? How clean are you? What does your social media feed say about who you are? What does your LinkedIn profile say about you? What do you wear? What do you drive? Where do you live? What do you look like? Do you know what you look like? I'll take it a step further. Morally, how do you feel? Some of us in this room feel morally beautiful. Some of us in this room feel morally gross. How does God see you? Do you think when God looks at you, he sees beauty? Do you think that he sees something that he's displeased with? Do you think he sees something 
that he's disappointed in? Do you think he sees something that is ugly? Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, even on our best days, we would probably all be embarrassed to say how we actually felt that the God of the universe sees our lives. And this is exactly why Israel needed a priest, a representative, someone that could go before them, as them, into the holy presence of God. But the problem is so many of us, including myself, on many days are unwilling to accept a priest in our lives. We are unwilling to receive what a priest can do for us because we feel the need to clean ourselves up before a holy God. Why are you such a perfectionist? Why do you always have to judge other people's parenting? Why do you burn yourself out trying to succeed at everything in life even though you're just one limited human being? Why do you feel like you have to perform for everybody, put on a face for everybody? Why do you think you have to be liked? Why do you feel like you have to curate your social media to project a life that you are not living? These are all attempts to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves, to make ourselves presentable. And and that's what we do even in the church, but think about non-church people. Why do people get so sucked into the ideologies of this age, the politics, the wisdom of this world, and then defend that wisdom with so much vigor and zeal as if they're a Pharisee for it? It's because while they do not know God, they were created in the image of God, and they feel the same need to be righteous, to feel clean. And so the world says, do this and you're clean. Do this and you're righteous. And then they back it with everything that they have because they're chasing the same need to be clean as we are. And this is why we need a priest. This is why we need Someone to be our representative because so much of our spirituality even is us just trying to clean ourselves up for God. Would you please accept my filthy life, God? There's no way you would actually accept me if you saw me for who I was. But he does see you for who you are. And somehow he accepts us. And I think the text in Zechariah gives us a hint as to why and how God accepts us. And so last week, I promised we'd come back to more of verse 23, which I think is a direct hyperlink to Zechariah 3, which says this, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now listen to the language that is in Zechariah 3 as Joshua the high priest stands filthy before the Lord. Verse 2, this man, Joshua, is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. He's supposed to be dead. He walked into the holiest of holiest places on earth, filthy. He should be struck dead, but instead it says that he's snatched like a burning stick out of fire. And why? Because we get the explanation in verse 4, which says this, so the angel of the Lord said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes, and turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Who's giving him the clothes? 
That's Jesus. That's pre-incarnate Jesus. I'm certain of it. You know why I'm certain of it? In verse 5, what does Jude say? Who led the Israelites out of Egypt? He says, my brother Jesus led the Israelites out of Egypt. But if you flip to the book of Exodus, what does the book of Exodus say? Who's leading them? The angel of the Lord. And here in Zechariah 3, who takes away Joshua's filth and gives him fresh clothes and takes away his sins? The angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. And this is what Jesus does for us. He takes our filth. And he puts on us robes of righteousness so that we can be presented blameless before his glorious presence without fault because he has taken our fault. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's this divine transfer of identity there. And we're in the age of canceling, aren't we? (laughs) The world is so much more religious than they would dare believe that they are because not only do they have their own rules for righteousness, but they also have their own system for punishing sin, which is why they cancel people. But think about when people get canceled in the public eye, what they normally always do. They make this public apology and almost every single time One line is like copy and pasted from every single apology, and they say something along the lines of, well, I did that, but that's not who I am. Well, I might have done that, but that's not who I am. Really? Because I believe that since we're made in the image of God, actually, what we do is a direct reflection of exactly who we are. What we do is who we are unless we have a priest, a representative. So do you know the only people on the planet Earth that can actually say that's not who I am are Christians, are those in Christ. Only then can we stand before a world and say, I have screwed up big time, but that's not who I am. I've failed. I've messed up, but that's not who I am because in Christ, I am pure. I am holy. I am righteous. And only then can we actually say that with freedom because it's true. Jesus keeps us from stumbling, but he's also able to present us, and he does present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. We can't forget that last part, with great joy. He presents us with great joy. And I know that this is cheating in preaching terms, but I'm going to do it again. My kid is my illustration this morning, again, because it's so perfect, because when my daughter, Rayma, came home last week after Father's Day, I remember my wife, as I walked in the door after church, she came up to me, she was like, Rayma is so excited to give you something. And so my little daughter, who's three, she runs up to me, you should have seen the joy on her face, and she brings before me what is supposed to be a picture of me, it didn't look like me at all. In fact, it was a horrible drawing. But I love you, Rayma. You're just not a great artist yet, yet. 
But you should have seen the look on her face. She presents this thing to me like it's the greatest thing she has ever done, this crimpled up piece of paper, and she presents it before me, and my heart was not filled with judgment. It was filled with utter joy. I couldn't believe how filled with joy Rama was just presenting this thing to me that she had crafted, that she had created, that she had made just for me, and in that moment, I got an image of the sun, crimpling our lives before the Father, redeemed in him, and going, God, look at them. Not, hey, would you, just, would you just take these dirty sinners? No, he's holding us up and presenting us before his glorious presence with great joy. And some of us need to hear that this morning because we can get over the fact that God accepts us, but he just accepts us. He kind of puts up with us. He loves us, but he doesn't really like us. No, God presents you in Christ before his glorious presence with great joy. We can put this matter to bed. He was glad to do it. It was not his duty, it was his delight, which is why Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was filled with joy. He loves you. He presents you blameless with great joy. And we need to know this. Because in Christ, just like my daughter's crumpled up piece of paper that was supposed to look like dad, with a horrible mustache drawing. God relocates our lives, just like my daughter's piece of artwork was relocated from her backpack to my desk, and he relocates our lives from the filth of our pit of sin, and he places them forever in the throne room of his grace where we are accepted forever. This is what Jesus does as a priest as our representative. And that is why Jude goes, I'm gonna worship. I'm gonna worship that God for what that God does. And he just lights the match and then he ignites the flame by not just saying this is who God is, um, or this is not what God does, but this is who God is. Who God is. But let me ask you, Who is God to you? Who is Jesus to you? Well, let me tell you what Jesus is to Jude. He says in verse 25, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. It cannot be lost on us this morning how radical that language is, the honor, the love in that language to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all ages, now and forevermore. Through who? My brother Jesus. And don't forget that (laughs) that was not language that would have been spoken out of Jude's mouth when Jesus was actually walking and doing his ministry. You want to know what Jesus' brothers thought growing up. In fact, John tells us immediately in his gospel that Jesus came to those who were his own, but even his own did not accept him. And whether this was talking about 
all of humanity or those closest to Jesus, including his own family, it doesn't really matter because we know that Jesus' own brothers didn't accept him. In fact, we're given a picture of this. When Jesus in the Gospels comes back home to the neighborhood in Nazareth and he shows up to the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll from Isaiah that says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he just walks over, he hands the scroll to the synagogue attendant, and then Jesus mic drops this thing, because he looks at everybody, and he says, today, (laughs) today this has been fulfilled. Like, I'm that dude (laughs) right there. Who's doing that thing? And do they all bow down and worship? No. They're like, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his brothers? There's his sisters right there. Who the heck does this guy think he is? And then they try to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. And if that weren't enough, in Mark's gospel, we get an account where Jesus' family is looking for Jesus, and he's in a crowd, and so they send a messenger ahead to try to find Jesus, and Jesus is teaching people at his feet, and they come up and they say, your brothers and your mom are looking for him, and in classic Jesus fashion, what does he say? Not send them in, he says, who are they? Who is my mom? Who are my brother? These people that are sitting at my feet, that are willing to do the will of the Father, these are my brothers and my mother's. And then the Gospel of John in chapter 7 makes explicit what all the other Gospels implicitly communicate to us when it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So do not let it be lost on you, the radical nature of the statement that Jude is now saying in this book, because how do I go from Jesus, my brother who's a little bit kooky, who Becky next door tried to throw off the ridge at Nazareth, to the one God, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. You don't just say stuff like that, especially to the guy whose hand-me-downs you wore all all, all your life. But something has happened in Jude's heart that took Jesus from here to here. That took Jude to say, my brother isn't just Lord. My brother was the one who led my great, 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 great grandparents out of slavery in Egypt. Where is Jesus in your heart? His brothers didn't believe in him. And see, every single heart in this room has to take that shift to live into the kingdom of God. Is he here or is he here? Is Jesus your homie? Is he a philosopher? Is he just another prophet? Is he like the piggy bank that you take off the shelf when you need a little bit of spiritual change and say, God, I just need a little bit of help right now? Is Jesus your political mascot that you hijacked when he's beneficial to your own purposes? Is Jesus just kind of something that's been adjacent to your life and you've been living a Jesus-adjacent life where Jesus has kind of always been floating there in the background, but 
he's never really been kind of the center of everything? Or is Jesus Christ given dominion, which was the thing that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, was to rule and subdue? Is he given dominion to rule and subdue you? And this is why I love what Brennan Manning says. He says, the greatest cause of atheism in our world today is that Christians who worship and acknowledge him with their lips, but they deny them with their lifestyles. This is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Let me read that again. The greatest cause of atheism in our world today, I think, Brennan Manning says, is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him with their lifestyles. This is simply what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. So we can say Jesus is given dominion, authority, and power, but what does that actually mean? Well, it means that we don't live the way the world lives, we don't sin the way the world sins, we don't worship power, we don't live in sexual perversion, we don't love money, we don't live in anger. Why? Not because God said don't do that, it's because this isn't the way of the kingdom. Where Jesus is king. The way of the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Shema. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus, you are given authority. You are given dominion over my life. And this means, as for contending, we don't fight the way that the world fights because we're free in his love. In the kingdom, we move towards healing and reconciliation because he has healed and reconciled us. And he did it when he was crowned king, but not on a throne, but on a cross. And how ironic that the thing that they plastered over his head in mockery that day was actually the truest thing they could say about Jesus because he was the king and there hung the king in all of his glory and he died like a lamb. But oh, the line that was deep that they could not see because he dominated death and sin and the grave and he roared back to life to pour out the main of his boundless grace. And see, this is the paradox of living a life where Jesus is king as we live lives that are self-sacrificial and meek like lambs, but we live them with a swagger, the swag of a lion. I am so sick and tired of Christians walking around with their tail between their legs because they feel like they're defeated by sin. He murdered sin. It's done. He won. He's the lion. He's the lamb who was slain, but he's the lion who defeated death. We live in victory. We've won, guys. Your sin does not hold any authority over your life anymore as long as you say, Jesus, you have the authority. Lift your head high. You are forgiven in Christ. You are loved in Christ. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able and he will present you on the last day before his glorious presence. And God's not going to look and see filth. He's going to see the purity and the, the love that was poured and robed you in by Christ himself. 
And this is how Jesus went from here to here in Jude's heart. (laughs) Because the same Jesus who Jude was saying was a little bit kooky and out of his mind came up to him at some point, I think. This is conjecture, but I would imagine. And he told him personally, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And then Jude watched his brother do it. And that's how Jesus went from here to here. And every heart in this room has to take that shift. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, we're told that the resurrected Jesus is walking around after he's come back to life for 40 days. Think about that. He's walking around, he's teaching people, he's appearing to others, and now it's time for him to go. And he's ascending to heaven. And when he's ascending to heaven, everyone's got their jaws on the ground. Has they ever seen anyone do that before? And two angels come by and they're like, pick your jaws up, don't worry, he's coming back. And then the apostles, it says, take the hike back from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And when he, they get there, this just rocked me this week. It's so beautiful to me. Luke, the writer of Acts, gives us this one last detail. And it says this, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Isn't that beautiful? The shift has happened. Jude's there, and he's praying with the apostles. He's Lord now in Jude's life. And and next week, we'll be talking about James. You know how James starts his book? Just like Jude does. I ain't my brother, that's my Lord. And see, this is why the fuel for contending is worship. Because we gotta see God for who he really is. And you know, at Crossroads, we always talk about the 90-10, right? And it's true, 90% of our lives. They're lived outside these walls, and so that means that 90% of our faith is lived without these walls, and 10% is in here. But I have become convinced that this 10% is more important than it has ever been before, where we gather in the space, we sit under God's word, we worship with all the saints, just like we will be doing for all of eternity, and we worship our risen Savior, the one who is worthy of all dominion and authority, and he is majestic, and he has all authority. And that's why we can worship. It's why we can contend. And it's why we can live the way that we're called to live under the rulership of our king. And just like the angel said at his ascension, don't be afraid. He's coming back. He's going to come back and get us. Who wouldn't want to worship that God? I want to worship that God, and we're going to worship that God right now.